Okay, so we got a few things we want to cover this tonight. We got to cover the prophets, the, the, the major prophets, and then we have to cover, well, before that, the doctrine of humanity as found in your textbook, right? Okay. But I want to do something just before that because I'm always trying to do a Bible study and we never can get to the end of the Bible study, right? But rather than a Bible study right now, I want to teach you all, just give you a brief primer on how to preach a sermon, okay? So, and you might be thinking, why would I need to do this? Just imagine the scenario. We have our life groups, persecution hits, all of a sudden we have to go underground. Who's going to preach to your people? <laughs> I'll try to make my way around, okay? And by the way, also, this material will help you in your teaching as well, okay? So, and at that point, I really do believe that this, that, you know, as you're taking care of that little flock, okay, you can, you can do this, okay? So, so this would apply both to men and women. Now, I, there are disagreements on, you know, can a woman be a, uh, an elder or pastor, you know, official title pastor. We're not even going to get into that issue, okay? But I believe the scriptures teach a woman can teach. She can prophesy. It's in the Bible. So, I'm going to, you know, you, can, you might find yourself in need of this. Uh, anybody ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? He's an incredible preacher, an incredible preacher, okay? So we're just having to teach you this, and, you can, and hopefully this will help. And as I said, it will also help you in your uh, teaching. Now, as far as, if you notice in the top part there, expository preaching, teaching as the steady diet for the sheep. In my opinion, the best way to feed your sheep is through a book of the Bible, and you just teach it verse by verse. That's how I preach. It's how I teach, okay? It just, it's, it's one step less removed from the source, okay? So the more you get into the topical and, and, and even book studies or anything else, it's not that those things are necessarily bad all the time, but if that's your main spiritual diet, it's kind of like cotton candy, it's tasty every now and then, but you don't want to eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we want, so expository preaching as the steady diet for the sheep. Know your sheep and their needs and then feed them. Whenever you're thinking, of, if you're teaching a Bible study, if you're preaching to your life group, whatever situation or scenario you find yourself in, who are you ministering to? Now, I'm not saying that so that you should come up with your points in order to get, you know, Aaron. <laughs> that guy, I know he really needs to hear this right now. That's not what I'm saying. It's probably, it's probably true, but that's not what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> but you know your people, what they're like, where they're coming from, what has happened this week, all those kinds of things, and you bring that in, okay? So in light of that, I have eight steps on how to prepare a sermon. Someday maybe you could do that. Maybe you could even write one or something. You know, maybe I'll maybe I could even have some 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 a uh, uh, lesson or something. So number one, read the passage in several translations prayerfully. So if you're going to preach 
Today I preached on uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. Okay, so I would read the passage several times in different translations. Okay, I like the Greek as well, but you don't have to learn Greek. Okay, okay, that's that's you don't have to do that one. Okay, I'll, I'll even as even if it goes underground and you have to be the pastors, you don't have to learn Greek. I'll just let you off the hook on that one. Okay, but you read, huh? If you're in prison in Greece, learn Greek. Okay, but uh, <laughs> no, uh, it's they think it is, but it isn't. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Greeks today think it's the same Greek, but it's not. They're really proud of that, but they're wrong. Okay, <laughs> so, so at, at any rate, um, so you read it. You read it in like the ESV. So that's a really good, very form, more literal translation. Then you read it in the CSB or NIV, that's a, a little less literal, but still decent. And then you might even want to try one of those little more whatever translations, but you know, so you're, but you're reading it, because if you read a few different translations, you can kind of get a feel for uh, where the passage is generally going, okay? And, and sometimes you pick up on something from one translation and not another. So read it through in a few different translations. Just read it through prayerfully. So you're seeking the Lord, and you're saying, Lord, here's your word. What are you saying in this word? And you read it a few times like that, okay? Number two, seek to find out the main thought in the passage, okay? There may be more than one main thought, but the best you can, like my passage this morning, it was dealing with the Lord's Supper, right? Right? And that was the main thought of the passage. So you're, you're thinking, you're seeking, what's the main, if I could write it down in a sentence perhaps, what's the main thought of the passage? And uh, that'll become important because you also want to be thinking of an illustration that you can use throughout the message to draw out this one main thought. Okay? So I had that idea this morning, the, the ultimate question, how can a holy God allow sinners into his presence? Okay, so that was, so that was, a, that's what I was thinking as I'm looking at what the Lord's Supper is teaching, okay? So, so you're, you're just thinking, okay, what's a, what's an illustration to do that? Because people learn by pictures for the most part. Uh, I tend to be I like, just give me bullet points, just give me outline, just give me, uh, that's how I learn, but most people want you to paint them a picture, okay? <laughs> and so, do both, that's what I do, <laughs> okay? So, but as you're seeking the one main thought, also start thinking of an illustration that will kind of be a thread throughout the message, okay? So, then third, break down the passage in two to four sections, and it's usually three. I know that sounds kind of funny, how preachers, they always have three points in a poem. That's the old Baptist way, right? Okay, three, three points. It's just because typically a section can, most of the time it's three points. If it's two, then you really have to elaborate on the two, or if it's four, you're kind of 
not spending a whole lot of time on each point. If it's five or six or seven, you're just barely mentioning them. So typically, if you really wanna dig into the passage, it's gonna be around three. If you look at my sermons, they're almost always three. Every now and then two, very rarely, but sometimes four. Okay. So you're, you're thinking through there, okay, break it down in these, in, into these sections, and, but illustrate the main point of each section. Whatever you do, you always want to illustrate. So if you're outlining your passage, you got three main points, you got maybe some subpoints under each main point, but each main point, you want to illustrate it. You want to come up with something maybe from your own personal life, something you read in a commentary, some, you know, something else, just some, you know, a joke perhaps even, but some way paint a picture so that people will get it because then they won't forget that. They're not going to forget your point if you paint the picture. And, and try to do that for every point because your job is not just to feed their brain. It is both to feed their brain and their heart. The illustrations typically tug on the heart. The points typically feed the brain. And we want to feed the whole person. When we get to the doctrine of humanity, we'll see that we're supposed to be thinking of ourselves as holistic. Okay? Okay. Uh, so anyway, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so. Uh, and then number four, use commentaries to reveal insights people might not know about the historical background. So you're going to read a commentary. By the way, as you're teaching, when you teach uh, a uh, passage, you want to read a commentary on it. If you're, if you're leading a life group or any other group, you want to read a commentary on it just to make sure you're not wrong. Now, the commentary could be wrong, don't care, because <laughs> it's not, you know, but at least they know something because they're scholars and they've been studying for a while. So then you look at it and you go, oh, wow, I never thought about that. You know, that's a, that's a good historical insight to help me make sure I don't misinterpret this thing. Okay, so that's, uh, so, so read a commentary. It's a good idea. And, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, for historical background especially, because remember, this, this book was written a long time ago in a different culture. So they think differently than we think. So sometimes something might say this in English, but that's really not what they meant, okay? And so you, that's what really matters, right? What did the original author intend to say to the original audience? So that's, that's what we want. Before we apply it to ourselves, we always want to ask that question. Okay, so use commentaries. Number five, ask what is theologically significant in each section. So now you're starting to think. You've been learning theology, right? Reading your book, you've been learning theology about God and his plan. Um, so you want to start thinking theologically. What do you learn about God in this passage? Uh, that, that was one of the things that I really appreciated uh, John Piper's book on preaching, is that they, that was his thing every time. What does the passage teach about God? Good question to ask, okay? And, and theology in general, Okay. And then write an introduction. So now, did you notice how you don't write the introduction right away? So I don't write, and when I'm writing my sermon, you would think, okay, since the introduction's the beginning, that's where you would start. 
But it isn't where you start, because then, if you write the introduction, then you're going to form your, your sermon around the introduction instead of getting the introduction from your sermon, okay? So you want to really get to know the passage, then come up with an introduction for it. So, but the introduction is very important, and this is true even in your Bible studies, okay? Because you want to hook them. You don't want people falling asleep, do you? Okay. I'll tell you what, it breaks my heart every now and then I'll see someone's. <laughs> okay, it's like, oh, I failed. <laughs> That's why we got coffee back. We brought coffee back to church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. So uh, write an introduction using a hook or illustration to get the people's attention. So you really, this does become very important if you want, because once you got their attention, you know, you could lose their attention. It's possible. <laughs> but, but at least you're starting out with them engaged, okay? So you, you write this introduction, then write a conclusion describing what we're supposed to do with this information. You know, it really should be practical somewhere along the line, right? And so what do we do with this uh, information? And then once you've written your sermon, practice it out loud with no one else around. It's always best when no one else is around because if you have to do it quietly because, you know, your wife is or listening or something like that, then you're like, you know, so, so wait till everybody's gone and then practice it and time it because, trust me, it's easier to go too long than it is too short. Isn't that right, Aaron? And he, he will testify about me. <laughs> okay. So just imagine how long they would be if I didn't time it. Longer than what you practice. So that's why it's important to practice. Because if you end up practicing and it's 45 minutes long, that means it's going to be 50 or so minutes long. It means it's too long, okay? So you want to practice timing it, and plus you'll feel a lot more comfortable. I practiced several times, okay? So, that's, uh, so, so that you feel really comfortable with the message, okay? So that's, hopefully, I just wanted to give you an outline, just real brief, so now you have it, and someday you might need this. So... Hold on to it, okay? So, questions on that? Which, which, what do you think? What did I say in my order? I, yeah, I read the passage first. You don't want to get skewed by anything but the Word of God, at least at first. Okay? So, read the Word. Read it a few times, prayerfully read it. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm really strange. I'm working on, yeah, I'm working on several sermons at once uh, over time, okay? I already am reading and doing some things on next week's and the next week's, and I just, I just keep doing that. I'm compiling illustrations and, and those kinds of things. You don't have to do all that, okay? But that's just, but the, the first starter, 
any passage before I even consider it. Actually, the first thing I do is I read it in the Greek, and then I read it in the English. So that's, that, that's me. You don't have to do that. But, but read the passage, yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Was there a hand over here? Huh? Okay. <laughs> Almost a hand. Yeah, okay, good. Good. Would you, now, you would feel comfortable teaching, wouldn't you? Could you see how this could help just even your teaching? Just with your teaching, you want to turn it into lots of questions instead of just giving information. Because with the teaching, when you're, when we're, uh, uh, we, we, uh, we like to call it um, conversational Bible study. So you're getting everybody talking. So you're, you would turn your points into questions and ask questions and get people talking about it, okay? That's basically the only difference. In preaching, I, I actually do sometimes ask a question, but not very often because I really don't want it to become a free-for-all, okay? I have to be very selective. I, I asked this morning, you know, what type what time during the church service do you feel God's presence the most, right? Okay, and we did have a couple answers there, but I was safe and knew what the answers were probably gonna be, and so, you know, because you really could go, whoo, and the preaching thing, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but in your Bible study, you want that. You know, I'm not saying you want to chase rabbits all day long, but you do want them, if you're asking questions from the text, they're digging in. So you can just turn this into a Bible study just by making the points questions instead of points. Okay. So you, you would feel comfortable doing that, right? And you could do that if needed to preach. That's uh, Lottie Moon. She's a famous missionary for the Southern Baptists in China. And she tried and tried and tried to get some men to come to this area of China to teach the people, and nobody would come. So she just preached. And the Southern Baptists do not believe in women preachers, but she just had to, okay? So you might find yourself where you just need to, okay? And so I, I hope I've given you just at least a little bit there to help, okay? Okay, um, let's... Let me ask you, we're going to now turn to uh, the, our chapter today on the doctrine of humanity, and I'm going to go through a few PowerPoints to kind of really solidify it, but just what are your thoughts? What are some questions that came up or some insights that, uh, that you enjoyed or, or disagreed with or whatever? I thought it was really interesting um, how the author split the different concepts of the origin of humanity up um, between naturalistic evolution, deistic, theistic evolution. Um, forget what the word was, but the one specific version of creationism and then yeah, pro progressive creationism. Yeah, what was but, it? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It, it was just really interesting to see kind of the, the logical breakdown of what the possibilities are and what people have believed. Okay. Good. And so you can see where people are all over the map, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Rory, did you have something? 
similar to that, I thought it was really unique how the, or good, I guess, that the author pointed out how far off the Bible you can get if the Bible's not your first source of truth when it was talking about sources of creation. Because I was like, none of those are in the Bible when he was listing the other oh, sure. fringy ones, I guess. Yeah, yeah, fringy ones. And, and that's why we started this class, and that's why I write that in my book on the uniqueness of the Bible, that if you don't have that part settled, what's your final authority? If it's anything but this book, you're going to... Okay, so that's good Good insight. Uh, page 202, there's a quote where he says, we shall never understand how a person who had been created in a state of rectitude, in a state of sinlessness, could begin to sin. Like, that is such a true... It just makes you wonder, like, how could Adam do that, you know? But I think it's the greatest mystery in theology. People, most people will say the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I've got the doctrine of the Trinity. That one doesn't, you know, I'm fine with the Trinity. The, the two natures of Christ, that's a, that's a little more, you know, interesting. Okay, wow, how does that work, Lord? But... Why did they sin? It's, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, now that we have a sinful nature, you know, we, we lean in that direction. That makes sense. But why did Adam and Eve sin? Yeah, so good, good. He could have. Yeah, well, uh, if, and if I'm right, when I, when I talked about... Uh, the covenant of works, you remember that? Okay, I believe that there was more than just one law. I think Adam and Eve had the moral law of God. So without the tree, they would have perhaps done something else. I don't know. I, I mean, I can't, I don't know their hearts. <laughs> but the why did they sin in the first place makes no sense. Yeah. Because sin makes you stupid. It's illogical to sin. It makes no sense even now. Why would we sin? We, we know God is good. We know he's all-powerful. We know he has the perfect plan. We know he's smarter than us. Why would we decide we're smarter than him? Okay, go ahead, Mary. Okay. Sorry. So, okay, good, good. What else? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, we don't want to blame them because we probably would have done the same thing. Phil? I'm looking at the part where it talks about God tells Noah and his sons after the flood, whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. You know, just the sanctity of life and, uh, you know, the, what, God, what God thinks of, of uh, murder, how, how serious it is. Mm-hmm. Good point, uh, because murder is so bad that the punishment is death. That's what he says there. Uh, and specifically because that person was created in the image of God, which means even after the fall, we still bear the image of God. No, I didn't see that. 
But he said, the, for the judicial punishment, he should be dead. Um, it would certainly make things a lot easier in our judicial system. <laughs> and nobody, there's no way we'll get it done because, I mean, we have very few people being killed. But, and, 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 and perhaps, I think you could even make an argument against capital punishment today because it's so unfair. You know, uh, the vast majority of people killed are poor black men. That's not fair. That isn't fair. There's something wrong in our judicial system because we know they don't commit all the crimes that are worthy. No, it's because we have rich people can get lawyers that can get them off. But if you made everybody that commits premeditated murder, because that's what it says in the Bible, if it's, an, if it's just a heat of the moment or is that something different, the Bible even declares that as different. But if it's premeditated murder, every single premeditated murder, you know, maybe make sure it's, it's right, maybe give them a, an opportunity to, you know, appeal or whatever, but then do it, you know. That way, rich, poor, doesn't matter. And the Bible said that. Everybody should be treated the same. But that's my opinion on the whole thing now. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's another question. Uh, if you, I don't remember if you remember, but early on, before Trump was even elected the first election, he was asked that question, and he said, oh, yeah. And boy, did he take some flack for it. And then he backed off. He's like, oh, wait a minute, okay, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's bring forgiveness, let's bring in, you know, so that's, that's a tough one, isn't it? But all the reason why we should make it illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think he was just thinking of it logically. He wasn't thinking about how he could get in trouble by saying that, <laughs> which is typically how he spoke, isn't it? <laughs> so I just, Laura and I just came back from the youth retreat today, um, and thinking about all these things that, even, even just like the beginning of the chapter, um, there, there are so many different things that God just knit together between Jim's teaching and mine um, at the youth retreat and the different things that he brought us through. And then, like, almost all of them are mirrored at the beginning of this chapter. Um, so just, wow. I guess, sharing that, 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 I don't know, God's up to something. It, it's cool. it, yeah, when God speaks in stereo, you know, start listening. Yeah, that's good. I, and I love hearing that kind of thing. Yeah, because you know it didn't just accidentally happen. On page 215, um, it's that Voices from the Global Church. I love what, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Intan is phonetic. Did you say 250? 215. Oh, okay. I was going to say you went ahead. Okay, 250. No. Okay, got it. I'm One sorry. result of our fallenness is the way we are naturally welcoming to those like us and hostile toward those unlike us. Um, the answer to such ethnic bias is not to flatten out ethnic differences as if they do not exist. Amen to that. Rather, the gospel ignites an impulse of love for those who are different from us. I thought, that is wisdom. Mm -hmm. And shouldn't it be? Isn't that the, the, the ultimate end of God's purposes is to call a people from every tribe, nation, tongue, language? That's, that's his, he wants that. So, yeah, that's good. Good, good insight. Thank you. Huh. Say, I'm wondering about just your comments or anybody really on, uh, you know, Romans 5, uh, you know, the two Adams. And in the text, 
<clears throat> the use of the words all and many. Uh, it's like, at least in my NIV, it's flipping around, using many, you know, under the first Adam. Well, it's really all that died, but it's used as all. Just your thoughts as to the jumping around. A little sure, bit. And, he, and he uses all and many always in that section, always meaning all. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's intending. He's just kind of, it's kind of a language way of saying, because when he says, and the many, he means everybody, doesn't he? So, so he is saying that. But that passage might disagree with something we read in here. Okay, so I'm going to get to that, because I think that's a, that, that part is important. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. I don't always agree with the textbook, and you don't have to either, by the way, okay, where we read and we test it according to this. By the way, that's even true for my teaching, right? You know, you, it's okay for you to disagree with me. Most people do. <laughs> that's, at some point or another, okay. So, so that's, uh, okay, well, let's, let me just, I'm going to walk through some uh, PowerPoint stuff on the doctrine of humanity, much of which just kind of flows this in, in a similar vein as our textbook because they covered, you know, uh, much of the basics, things about, uh, about the, uh, who we are. <clears throat> I have this little statement, who are we? Are we the chance collection of molecules, a machine doomed to wear out into non-existence without meaning or purpose? Are we a renegade thought that needs to be melted back into the one ceasing the charade of individuality? The first one was naturalism. The second one was Hinduism. Okay. Are we the slave bound to submission to Allah with no hope of any higher relationship with God? That's Islam. Are we a slightly malfunctioning creation that needs some tweaking but otherwise is okay? humanism, or are we created in the image of God in order to experience deep communion with God as his child and friend, but in rebellion having committed cosmic treason worthy of eternal separation from God with no hope in ourselves? That's what we find to be true. It is very important that we understand who we really are. Okay, so let's look at humanity's original state. God made Adam and Eve unique and superior to all the rest of creation. Uh, they were perfect, finite creatures, but perfect, but mutable. Do you know what mutable means? Changeable. So they were made finitely perfect, but able to change. Um, I like Thomas Watson. I read him this morning. Well, I'll read them again. Uh, huh? Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> See what a glorious condition man was in when God entered into covenant with him. He was placed in the garden of God, which for the pleasure of it was called paradise. 
He had his choice of all the trees, one only accepted. He had all kinds of precious stones, pure metals, rich cedars. He was a king upon the throne, and all the creation did obeisance to him. As in Joseph's dream, all his brethren's sheaves bowed to his sheaf. Man in innocence had all kinds of pleasure that might ravish his senses with delight and be his baits to allure him to serve and worship his maker. He was full of holiness. Paradise was not more adorned with fruit than Adam's soul was with grace. He was the coin on which God had stamped his lively image. Light sparkled in his understanding so that he was like an earthly angel, and his will and affections were full of order, tuning harmoniously to the will of God. Adam was a perfect pattern of sanctity. Adam had an intimacy of communion with God and conversed with him as a favorite with his prince. He knew God's mind and had his heart. He not only enjoyed the light of the sun in paradise, but the light of God's countenance. This was Adam's condition when God entered into a covenant with him. But this did not long continue, for man, being in honor, abideth not, lodgeth not for a night. His teeth watered at the apple, and ever since it has made our eyes water. <laughs> so we see who is, who are we? One thing that we are is that we were created in the image of God. Now the, the Bible, that is a, a legitimate question, what does that mean that we were created in the image of God? So let me give you a few points that come from, if you want to write these verses down, we don't have time to read them, but Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24, James 3.9, Genesis 9.6, and 2 Corinthians 3.18. These verses reveal because they all talk about the image of God and what it means for us to be in the image of God. First of all, it, re- it, it speaks of knowledge. Colossians 1.10 brings that out. The image of God uh, speaks of our knowledge. We have a superior knowledge to the rest of creation, and that is, in a finite sense, like God in, all, in, in his omniscience, that he is all-knowing, but he has given us this intellect that is completely unique, really, to the rest of creation. It deals with righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 24 brings this out, both of these, righteousness and holiness. The image of God consists of righteousness. There's a perfect conformity in his will to the will of God. Uh, Purity, we have, you notice that animals don't sin. They don't have a sense of right and wrong, but we do. God has put that in us. We're unique in that sense. Uh, if If a dog bites a kid, you don't say that was an evil dog. You might put it down so that it doesn't do it to other kids, but you would just say it's just because of its nature. It's because of the way that particular dog is. But human beings have this thing called free will. And so we are guilty when we sin. Okay, so we have, that's a difference uh, that we, we find in this idea of the image of God. Dominion. 
passage that speaks originally in Genesis 1.26 when it says we're created in the image of God. It goes right on to say, and so therefore have dominion over the rest of the earth. So there's a sense of ruling, of leadership. Now under his ruling and leadership, that's what all of these are, are placed, but this sense of dominion. And, uh, and then relational. Communion with God and each other. God, in his uh, essence, he is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's always been communion uh, and relationship in the Godhead. And he created us in his image uh, and, and with the sense that we would have a relationship with him. Uh, Max Anders says they are special Capacities given to man by God who has not given them to animals. Pigs don't commit suicide out of despair over the meaninglessness of life. Kangaroos don't revolt against their superiors because of discrimination in the herd. Penguins don't form support groups to help each other deal with personal trauma. Wildebeests don't record their history or trace their family trees. Buffalo never draw crude sketches of themselves on cave walls. <laughs> relational and it's not physical when we say we're created in the image of God that does not mean God has a body he does not he in his essence is immaterial he is spirit he created the universe that's the entire physical matter by speaking a word that means it the physical matter didn't always exist God doesn't have a body. Now, Jesus does, right? When we get to Jesus, that's next month, we'll see that he has two natures. And in his humanity, yes, he does have a body. And we learned a little bit about that with the Lord's Supper today. Okay, so not physical. Questions on the image of God before I move on. Okay. Nice beard. Because you know, you know Jesus had a big, bushy beard. The nice little trim things, that, that is not how Jesus looked. And he did not have long hair. He certainly wasn't blonde and blue-eyed. <laughs> but our pictures come from our pictures. <laughs> Back in the first century, it was looked down upon to have really long hair. He did not, unless you were a Nazarite, and Jesus was not. So he didn't have long hair. And they were commanded not to trim their beards. That was one of the Old Testament laws. He obeyed the law, so he had a big, bushy beard. Okay, you just don't like that picture of him, perhaps, but that's what he looked like, okay? But so, what did, he, I, I, no, I don't think so, but I mean, certainly God could have made it, because Jesus didn't have a body yet. At that point, Jesus didn't have a second nature, humanity yet. He wasn't Jesus yet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, and the Bible speaks of how in our original state, we were created in the image of God, and we were created, oh, I already got that down. We were created male and female. 
The scriptures are very clear that gender is not just this uh, thing human beings came up with. No, uh, it is God's design from the very beginning. Now, people who struggle with their gender identity are revealing that they are broken, just like the rest of us. All of us are broken in different ways. So we don't want to beat people up for that, but at the same time, we don't want to advocate it either. That's not helpful. You know, all of us in our brokenness, we want to help each other become whole again because the image has been distorted. He created us originally male and female. Now, some people struggle with their identity. We want to help them see, no, if you were born a boy, you're a boy. And let's help you deal with that and work through that as opposed to saying, oh, okay, you're a girl or whatever. That's, that's not helpful to them. If somebody's cutting, we don't say, oh, that's how, you're, how you are. Go ahead, cut no, we want to help them. We don't want to beat them up either, do we? So we want to help them, come alongside them. But it's very, very clear from Scripture. And this is where I, I just bought a book. I have not even begun to read it yet. I just, it just came in the mail. Four views on the transgender issue. And these four views books are typically evangelical books. I'm thinking there's one view from an evangelical standpoint. I don't get it. So I haven't even opened it up yet, but I'm really curious. How they must have had other views from other, you know, groups that rather than just evangelicals. So I'm really like dumbfounded. No, the Bible is clear. We were originally created male and female. So we'll find out what, what, to, what to, I'll keep you posted, okay? But we were created male and female. Um, let's see here. That entails equality. I think this is a great difference between Christianity and Islam. Islam very clearly treats women as inferior to men. Uh, so it includes equality. Um, we will see that that doesn't mean necessarily that there is a difference. We'll, see, we'll look at that in just a minute. But it does show that there is uh, equality. Galatians 3.28, I think, brings that out very clearly. Um, it says that, uh, it, interesting, when God created Eve, he said, I, I, I make, him a, make Adam a suitable helper. Every translation says something a little different. Uh, oh, uh, I think the King James says a help meet. A help meet. What in the world is that? <laughs> okay. There's two Hebrew words, and they're both fascinating, okay? First, ezer is helper, a helper, okay? And... We know that does not entail any inferiority because God is called our Ezer. So it doesn't, it just means a helper, okay? Not inferior or superior, but a helper, Ezer. Um, uh, then the second word that we see, Neged, is uh, some, most of the time it's something like in the face of or before. Uh, but but it, but quite often it also means opposite of, and opposite in the sense of completing. So that's what we see with that neged. That woman is the opposite 
but one who completes the man. So the man is incomplete, and that's clear from the text, isn't it? You know, this isn't working out. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Oh, it's not good that the man's alone. So he needs a helper, uh, a ezer neged, okay? And, uh, but that is someone opposite him. Now notice there, opposite would go against the idea of homosexuality because that's the same. Homo means same. So we, they, they complete each other because men and women really are different. That's a newsflash. <laughs> no, it ain't. I'm dumbfounded. That, and by the way, this is, in my opinion, this very fact that most people still would agree men and women are different. At their core, they're different. Men will never be able understand completely a woman. And women will never be able to fully understand a man. We're not. We have to, that's why we have compromise. <laughs> we, and we recognize, you know what? We need each other. God knew what he was doing when he put these two opposites together in order to be one completion. So we do need each other, but we are different. Now, if we're different, and if what I just said was true, that completely defeats transgenderism. A man who thinks he's a woman, a man doesn't have any clue as what it means to be a woman. He might think that he's more effeminate than another man, but he's not a woman. He can't possibly even know what it is to be a woman and vice versa. So, but that's that struggle because we live in a broken world that we're just wrestling with these internal difficulties in our life. The solution is Jesus, not surgeries or hormones or anything else. Uh, but we see this, this uh, suitable helper here. This is how God made them. Now, uh, let me see, do I have another? Yes. But that doesn't mean there aren't roles. There aren't different roles. Now, this is where Christians do disagree, and I do think it's very important, but I don't think it's worth dividing over. Okay, that's my point. That's my belief, okay? I do believe that there are roles, both in the head leadership of a church as well as in the family. I believe the man is supposed to be the head of the home, and Elder-run churches should be men running the churches. And I, I, I think that there's a biblical case for that, but good, solid Christians disagree with me on that. Okay, And, uh, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay to agree to disagree agreeably. Although I do think there's ramifications when we're wrong, <laughs> whichever one, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that that is going to bring about some difficulties. For instance, in marriages, if you don't have the, the male leadership, then you're going to run. If you have a 50-50 kind of a setup, someone's fighting for the 51%. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, well, anyway. Okay, so I believe, so there's two different views within uh, roles. One's called egalitarianism, one's called complementarianism. Both of these views believe that men and women are equal. 
that, men, that, that neither view believes that anyone is inferior to the other. They just believe that God created us differently. That's the complementarian view. That's my view. God made us different and to complement each other in the different roles that he calls us to be in, okay? Whereas egalitarianism says there are no roles. And that's uh, uh, seemingly arguing that there really isn't a lot of difference in us. Well, anyway, uh, so I'll, I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that because we do have a lot more to, to cover here. So maybe we'll, if we come back, if you have some questions, we'll ask about that. Okay, but that's, unless somebody, are you tracking with me at least? genderism. A man can't understand a woman fully and vice versa. Right. I'm not arguing with you. I just want to write it down. Okay, yeah. Because it was good a, and was A man slow. cannot even know what it's like to be a woman. Therefore, if he thinks he's a woman, he's wrong. He doesn't even know what that means because he's a man and vice versa. Yes. It might be helpful for us in the future near future, to do some training on how to minister. Um, like in life group settings, if there are people struggling, sure, just how to minister and come alongside That's with good. people that can help us sort of... That would be something helpful. I yeah. will say this. There's an excellent, excellent, excellent book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Incredible. She doesn't just deal with transgenderism she deals with abortion transgenderism uh homosexuality and um youth, euthanasia amazingly putting it all together the whole, all of these stem from the same error it's kind of, i mean it, did you read it pam you read it yeah excellent book it just does a very good job of that that would be a good starting place but i agree with you how do we minister and she does she deals with that in that book as well not just presenting a case against it, but also how do we minister to those who are struggling. The other thought that I had with this is this all, this whole struggle that we're living through really does go all the way back to the beginning where the enemy tries to get in and say, did he really say, sure. you know, it's just That's good you point. Know, striking at the core of what God said. And this issue will be the issue that brings persecution on the church and brings the, the globalism in one world system. No question about it. If, if 40 years ago you would have told me that, I would have thought you were crazy. So not this Wednesday, but... Oh, this. Yeah. It's the SOGI laws. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's coming up. It's already it's already been done in Canada. So they are absolutely. The churches are reeling. They're, they're, I just just heard today a pastor got thrown in jail for um, for having church in Canada. That's uh, yep. So 
that's why we want to be, get you guys prepared. <laughs> we don't know how soon or, you know, whatever, but it's coming to a theater near you. <clears throat> okay, uh, let's see. Basic constitution. <laughs> I picture, picture of the constitution that has nothing to do with what we're saying. But just <laughs> okay. Um, what are we made up? Are we three parts? Are we two parts? Are we one part? Are parts are parts? Or how does that work? Okay. You remember that old chicken commercial, parts are parts? <laughs> okay. All right. What are we? Um, there are uh, a few different views. You have trichotomy and some of the passages they believe. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23 actually says we are body, soul, and spirit. Hebrews 4.12 says you can divide between soul and spirit. So those would be verses to argue for a trichotomy that there were, that were three parts. A difficulty with that is that um, Jesus, he said that uh, we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's four parts, right? So our, none of these, we don't have a four-part view because nobody ever believes we're four parts. But if you look at that passage, the guy who responds, the scribe, he says, you are right. He lists three parts, one of which is not the same. So there's five parts if you put them all together. So are we five parts, four parts, three parts, two parts, or one part? <laughs> okay, so there is a difficulty. Their dichotomy argues from several passages that we are um, a material and an immaterial. There's a material and an immaterial aspect of who we are. And soul and spirit are quite often uh, used interchangeably in these verses, okay? So there's, uh, so are we... Really, our basic makeup is an, a material or an immaterial uh, aspect. Uh, and, then, um, and then some have argued for different forms of monism. I think our textbook just absolutely wrote it off, and rightfully so by his definition of monism, but there are those within the Princeton theologians who did not mean what he defined as monism but you don't need to worry about all that, okay? <laughs> I'm just trying to justify the Princeton theologians, okay? Uh, the early ones, not the, the, the late, the ones who are there now in Princeton are, <laughs> but uh, the, the, uh, the early Princeton theologians. Well, anyway, um, uh, or conditional unity and what in the world does that actually mean? There's a sense of unity in us. We were created to be Material and immaterial, body and soul or spirit, okay? We were created this way. When we die and our soul goes up to heaven, spirit, whatever, that immaterial part goes up to heaven, the body's just kind of in the dust there, that's not natural. That's not the way it was originally intended. And it's gonna be fixed at the rapture when the body comes back up, gets recreated into a really nice, cool body that doesn't have any wear and tear, on it, okay. That's the way we're. That's the way we're ultimately designed, and uh, and so uh, it's probably something like that. But uh, but Christians can disagree on this, right? Most Christians believe in trichotomy, don't they? Yeah, that's. Uh, because the spirit is dead before you, yeah. 
like, like I said, yeah, that's, that's, some would hold to that. When you read those passages, they are somewhat interchangeable, but then other times it says you can divide between you know, soul and spirit. So what is that? How exactly are we made? Now, the error many make is that once we're born again, our spirit is renewed, and that our spirit is the perfect part of us. That's how they would say. But listen, there's no perfect part of us. <laughs> we're still imperfect until Christ comes. So that would be the, so my spirit doesn't make any bad decisions is my soul. So the soul becomes bad and the spirit becomes good. And that's that, you know, so I, we have to be careful once we split ourselves up in three parts. Now, the, the original people, they use this language kind of interchangeably, five parts, four parts, three parts, whatever, because they weren't thinking like us. We're rationalists at heart. <laughs> We've been influenced by the enlightenment and, you know, for good and for bad, we've been influenced by the Enlightenment. So we, we just tend to think in categories like that when they didn't. Okay, yeah. So when Paul talks about if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, all things, is that what you were thinking too? Yeah. All things, you know, the, basically becoming the new man, you would say immaterial and material. Yeah, and it's Everything. becoming new. You can't separate I wouldn't it. say I'm... I'm I'm, I am brand new, but I'm also imperfect, sure. still in process. I still have a sinful nature. Or as some would say, our, we don't have a sinful nature anymore. Got it. But, uh, okay. So let's see here. Let me see. Uh, so there we are, humans, body, soul. And somehow there's the mind, will, and affections within all of that uh, for, uh, for humans. Uh, the Puritans, if you notice as they write, they, they, they will speak about the mind and they will, how we can love God with all of our mind. They will speak about the, the will, how we surrender and submit to the Lord, and they will speak about the affections. And they meant more than just emotions when they use the term affections. That's the deep-seated, it does have emotions that you feel, but it's far more than just emotions. Love is the great positive affection, and hate is the great negative affection. Before Christ, we love what God hates and hate what God loves. When we become Christians, we begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. But then there's also joy and peace and these affections that uh, the Puritans love to dwell upon and experience, which uh, I do too. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see here. I'm gonna... We, we're getting... We don't need to... Did, did he talk about traducianism? I don't think he even did, so I, if he didn't, I'm not going to. Uh, okay, we've already talked about that. Uh, here's Thomas Boston, another, pre, uh, another Puritan. It's fourfold state. The state of innocence, under covenant of works, perfect but mutable. That's Adam and Eve before they sinned. The state of nature, that's totally depraved. That's what happens after we're, uh, you know, after the fall. And then the state of grace, reconciled but not perfect. That's when we, we become Christians. And then the eternal state where we're perfect and not mutable. That's the glorious end game, end goal. Okay. Um, the thing, and I suppose I should do this before we take our break. Um, the thing that I would, oh, I haven't even gotten to sin yet. 
All right, let's go to sin. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God and act, attitude, or nature. That would be Wayne Grudem. He almost stole Grudem's definition, by the way. When I, when I saw his definition, I said, boy, that sounds a lot like Grudem's definition. But that's okay. It's a good definition. <laughs> okay. Sin, the bad guy, makes no sense, right? Um, I was trying to think of the... I have a book... Uh, called the uh, a brevity of sin so a brief uh, document on sin and uh, and he entitled it underneath not the way it's supposed to be it's not the original intention we were not made to sin when we say oh i'm just human no if you're talking about sin that's subhuman that is not the way we were designed we were not made to sin um Three possibilities concerning God and sin. God is the cause. Believe it or not, there are theologians that believe that. Zwingli was one of them. But if he's the cause of sin, doesn't that make him a sinner? According to his word, it makes him a sinner. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Right? But fortunately, most don't believe that. Uh, God is not completely in control. You know? That also doesn't sound good, right? <laughs> good, good for you. <laughs> Glad your, your little antennas are going up. <laughs> Saying, wait a minute. <laughs> so, sovereign permission. And this is once again what the Puritans came up with: uh, the idea that God is sovereign over sin. He could have stopped us, but He allowed it for His purposes. Could have stopped Adam and Eve. Yes. Well, uh, there's two different ways that you could, that they, that different groups that would argue God is not in complete control, okay? You have the open view of God, which believes that God doesn't know the future. So he really doesn't know what we're going to do. He didn't know that things were going to get this bad, okay? Um, and that's, uh, there's many who hold to that. Uh, another group believes that God is not all-powerful. Uh, so they would say, because of that limitation, God is hoping to get control, uh, but you know there is this renegade power out there. So either he's not all-powerful or he's not all-knowing, so it's a denial of one of his essential attributes, which would make these people heretics, okay, in my, in my opinion. Um, uh, so, so, but that's, yeah, sovereign permission. Okay, Here, here's your uh, chart if you want to look at it. Uh, you have uh, on the far left, pantheism, the, the universe is God. Then process theology, that's God is not all-powerful. Open view of God, that's God is not all-knowing. Sovereign permission, that's what I believe. <laughs> and then, Fatalism, that's, you know, God just causes everything. He, he caused us to, you know, sin or whatever. And that's a, so that's, there's your kind of a, you can see how it goes from one end to the other in a spectrum. Sin and sovereignty chart. Why do I have that part coming in? Oh, well. 
Four views on the doctrine of original sin. Now, I believe original sin should be called inherited depravity. Both of those points are important to talk about, and this is where I kind of, a little bit, in some parts, disagree with our author, okay? So that's what, so we'll see that Christians can disagree on some of this, but there's an essential core that, that needs to be embraced, okay? So here's your four views on inherited. You have Pelagianism, which says we do not inherit Adam's sin in any way. So now we're dealing with the inherited part, okay? Pelagius believed that all humans are born with a clean slate. They don't inherit anything from their parents, okay? Augustine disagreed with them, and Pelagius was declared a heretic way back then in that, uh, in that discussion. Arminian view is that we have a sin, the sinful nature is passed on, but not the guilt, okay? Now, this means that we all are inherit a sinful nature, but we're not guilty until we personally sin. Now, I would argue that that's correct. Okay, so that's, now that's where, this is where I would disagree with our author, okay? So, but, but let's walk through it, and then you can harass me and thrash me and do whatever, okay? <laughs> the Augustinian view is that we all sinned in Adam. That's where the, the uh, Romans 5 passage comes in, and he does not go into great detail in this, but it seems like he holds to the Augustinian view that we all sinned in Adam, which to me would argue that somehow I already existed, and that, that means the pre-existence of a human being, and that is heresy. That is not in Scripture. Augustine said we all were in Adam in unindifferentiated form. I think that was his phrase. Unindifferentiated form. But I was not there. I can testify. I was not there. I didn't exist until my mom and dad came together, okay? That's all there is to it. That's, uh, so, so I would disagree. We did not all sin. Now, by, by the way, most Puritans don't agree with Augustine. They held what's called the federal view, that Adam sinned as our representative, but as our representative, once he sinned, then we are all uh, to blame. So they would still argue that we uh, are, the guilt is passed on to us as well. And... Uh, and the reason, I don't see that from the, the alls in the Romans 5 passage because they, all the alls also speak of Christ saving us. So if the all meant all with Adam bringing, making us sinners, then the all must be all making everybody saved. And the passage does not teach universalism. But if you look at the, especially in the Greek, it's the same exact form. So uh, to me, the translations kind of fudge it up a little bit because they don't want to be teaching universalism. But this passage is where many people who believe in universalism get it. But we know from other passages that not everybody is saved, so it must mean potentially. But if it means potentially in the trusting in Christ, then it would argue potentially guilty in Adam, when we come to the age where we can choose right from wrong. This little baby right here, 
has not sinned yet, in my opinion. Okay? That's, okay, might be an annoyance to you at times, especially when she's teething, but, or playing piano. Uh, <laughs> eats the piano, yeah. So, but, but the Bible does teach, and I do have a paper on this, so I don't want to go into much more detail. There's a paper on our website, What Happens to Babies When They Die? I argue from Scripture, they go straight to heaven. If they're a Hindu baby, Muslim baby, atheist baby, Christian baby, they all go straight to heaven. That means all miscarriages go straight to heaven. They're not guilty. The problem with these other views is if we're guilty, then that means we go to hell. They didn't even have an opportunity to put their faith in Christ, and as a little baby, they went to hell. Now, some, like John Piper, would say, well, if they were elect, they still went to heaven. But he's actually contradicting himself because in other places he says, you have to personally put your faith in Christ before you can go to heaven. And no baby ever did that, so he contradicts himself. And so I totally disagree with John Piper. No, all babies go to heaven. But if I inherit the guilt, then that proposes a problem, doesn't it? Shouldn't I go to hell? Uh, so read that, read those verses, and I'll, and maybe we can discuss this a little bit later, but that, that's where I disagree, okay? I would hold to the Arminian position on this particular thing. Although the federal position, if you held to the federal and said, and they're not guilty until they personally sin, I'd be okay with that one. I love the Puritans, so I always want to give them a little bit of, you know. It's, it, it would be saying the same thing. Uh, yeah, so. But something is passed on. I am born apart from a personal relationship with God and with a sinful nature that will sin when I come of age, okay? So, so we can see where the difficulties lie in that, okay? Any questions on that? I mean, it, it, it's worth discussing a little bit if you if you feel that's uh so no one wants to tar and feather me um okay. I, have, I have one question oh, you this, wanted to tar and feather me? no is this um why lots of uh denominations that do like ch um child they do the child baptism but they also do um like certain age they they do rites of passage yes um, in fact um there are two groups that baptize babies. One group baptizes babies, that would be the Roman Catholic and the Lutherans, because they believe the baptism saves them. So you can understand, with Augustine, he held, first of all, everyone sinned in Adam. Then he began to believe that the baptism saves you, okay? So if the baptism saves you, and, and everyone in, was sinned in Adam, so in order to get people, have less people go to hell, let's baptize babies. That is where it became universal. There were very few, in fact, the first two centuries, we have zero accounts of anyone baptizing babies. Zero. None. Nada. Zip. Not one. Okay? 200 years. No ba infant baptisms. That should argue that isn't in the Bible then. Unless they all missed it for 200 years until they find, you know, and the... And the 
<laughs> and the Bible Institute, yes. <laughs> so, but, but I was thinking but, about like the but, age of accountability. But once they came up with that, well, the age of accountability, they didn't, well, then they began to see, okay, we need to still train them once they get older so they don't sin so much. And so that, but, but that's okay. That's good. That's just, you know, solid trying to help your kids. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, I'm just gonna. Okay, now depravity. So I said inherited depravity. So we talked about the inherited part. I would argue we inherit the sinful nature, but we don't inherit the guilt, okay? Depravity, how depraved are we? Okay, how bad are we? Pelagian said humans are spiritually neutral. That doesn't seem to be. It seems that kids really do start right out the, the, the gate, you know, being very selfish, self-centered, just, you know, okay. Now, they're still not guilty until they have that conscience and so forth, you know, age of accountability. But, but you know, to say they're born spiritually neutral, that, that guy... Well, he was a monk. He didn't have kids. Okay. If he was a good monk, he didn't have kids. There were lots of monks that did have kids. But anyway, we won't go into that. The Arminian view is that humans are spiritually crippled. Now, here's where I disagree with the Arminian view. Okay. Now, not all Arminians, and especially Arminius, did not agree with this view. Okay. But Arminianism tended to lean in this idea that humans are spiritually crippled, so... Um, I, you know, I need, I need help from God. And so it's kind of like, you know, God's my co-pilot kind of thing, you know, that's uh, like that kind of thing, okay? Um, whereas Augustine, I believe, correctly said humans are spiritually dead before they come to Christ. Ephesians 2 says that, flat out, verse 1, we're spiritually dead, which means I can do nothing of spiritual significance, positively at least, until I become made alive. <laughs> so, so there's a, so we're, humans are spiritually dead. So the depravity, I'm totally depraved, is how uh, typically the, 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 uh, the language was, at least in the past, total depravity. Um, and that one seems to be right. If, you've, if you're tracking with the whole Calvinist and Arminian perspective, remember when we had that discussion? You, you're kind of probably seeing that I'm a three-point Calvinist. Okay. So, uh, but, because I agree with spiritual, you know, uh, total depravity. All right. Um, sin is cosmic treason. Let's just, we'll just stop there. Any questions on sin or humans? <laughs> More of a comment on the part where in 196, Sin can be categorized as commission, omission, and imperfection. I have never heard of the imperfection one, where it says that a deed done with wrong motives is sin. So is that saying, like, you did something good, like helped an old lady across the street, but you did it because you wanted fame? That's wrong? It's like... Sure, I think yeah. that's what he's saying, okay. yeah. So that's the least... Interestingly, the action can still be wrong even with right motives, right? You know... You feel like I'm supposed to murder this person. It would be good for everybody. And I just feel like maybe even God's leading me. That would be bad, right? So you can even have right motives, at least in your heart. But the problem is none of our hearts are perfect. 
It's in interesting that you bring that up and that David had that issue with Saul that he would not kill Saul because that was God's place to uh, do the judgment on Saul and not David's place to pronounce judgment. Okay, yeah. What? Book of Judges brings that out. They did what was right in their own eyes, right? Yeah, and that, and that clearly was bad. Okay. Okay, we're going to take a five-minute break, and then that'll leave me 35 minutes to discuss the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And that's okay, because I, I do just want to cover some interpretive skills for you in that regard. All right? Now, the prophets can be very rewarding, but also very confusing. As you read through Isaiah all the way through, so this is both the major and the minor prophets, what I'm going to give you a little bit tonight will help you through all of the prophetic material, and then we'll spend a little more time next month on the minor prophets, okay? So did you, you read one of them, right? And read your, uh, who, what, what did you read? What's, uh, Isaiah, the longest one. Let's give him some credit there. <laughs> I, got, I just got a commentary. It just came out. I've been waiting for this commentary for six months, and he's, it's been postponed, postponed, postponed. And uh, it is the, supposedly the elite conservative commentary on Daniel. And it, but it'll, you guys wouldn't get it wouldn't like it too much because it deals a lot with the language and, you know, into the, the Hebrew and the Aramaic and because uh, Daniel was written in both languages. And, and uh, so he really goes into, but, but also how to preach it, how to, this is a full-orbed commentary and I've been waiting for this because all the commentaries are typically just, they trash Daniel. They don't even understand the book. Okay, good, good. Yeah, well, I'm looking for it. I just bought it, so I'll be digging through this thing. It's 750 pages, and I'll be digging through it. So I, it'll probably take me a couple weeks. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's all about priority. <laughs> Books are my priority. <laughs> anyway, okay, so I want to give you some, basically some helps as you're reading these books and then as you're teaching these books, okay? So did, uh, hopefully some of this will really uh, be helpful for you, okay? So, uh, by the way, hermeneutics for prophets, that means uh, how to interpret the prophets. That's what hermeneutics means. It's the study of how to interpret the prophets or, or anyone. So hermeneutics is just how to interpret the Bible. So hermeneutics for the prophets, Okay, so let me give you some principles for interpreting the prophets first. Uh, a lot of the prophets is poetry. And if you remember, we talked about the different genres of the Bible. When we looked at the wisdom books, we discovered that most of the wisdom books, in fact, if not all of the wisdom books, is, is poetry. And so that entails uh, all the things that you learned about how to interpret poetry would go along with the prophets when they're 
in poetic form. And probably roughly half of the prophets is poetry. It's, uh, so that, that's where you, we, we need to recognize that fact, okay? So a lot of the prophets is poetry. It is primarily God speaking to us. One of the biggest differences between the prophets and the uh, poetry books, wisdom, wisdom and poetry books, is the, like the Psalms are typically humans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking to God. These are God speaking to, to people. Okay, so that's uh, so primarily God speaking to us. Forthtelling and foretelling. This means um, God forthtelling. That means He's speaking to them. The prophets would call people and say, "You're sinning. Repent." So He's directly talking to the people. Foretelling is speaking of the future, predicting the future. The modern understanding of the prophets is they try to get rid of the foretelling and say it's only foretelling, and that's just simply wrong. There's a lot of predictive prophecy in the prophets, but it's not all predictive, okay? So it's both and, not either or. Some of the prophecies are conditional. That's interesting. Uh, so he'll say such and such. If you do such and such, uh, in fact, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, uh, this is what God is going to do because you've been sinning or whatever. But if you repent, he will relent and not do that. So sometimes there are conditions within the prophecies. Some, And here's the difficulty at times because even if it doesn't say there's a condition, it might be conditional. So if it doesn't say there's a condition, you know, normally, if they repent, then that maybe that won't happen, okay, so to speak, okay? But uh, so that's, so just recognize that that some of the prophecies are conditional. There's a phrase called census plenier. Now, whether you remember that phrase or not is irrelevant, but what it means is, is that uh, many have made a case, and I agree with them, that the original prophecies had multiple fulfillments. So there might have been an initial fulfillment at that particular time and then a greater fulfillment later on. Uh, many of the, when you read Matthew, he'll say, he'll, he'll read us, you know, he'll say, and Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and he'll read the prophecy and if you go back and look at the original prophecy, it didn't originally have anything to do with that. When he said, when he quotes the, uh, um, let's see here, uh, the, uh, and, and Rachel is weeping, but was not, uh, was you know, was not uh, comforted. Uh, he quotes that passage. Yeah, a voice. Uh, this is in chapter 2, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. He says that, 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 that Jeremiah the prophet, that was fulfilled when the uh, babies were killed by Herod. Okay? But that prophecy, if you go back and read it, it was talking about the babies killed during the uh, Babylonian captivity. 
So it had an initial fulfillment with the Babylonian captivity, but it had a greater fulfillment in the babies being killed at the time of Jesus. So there's, it's a, a dual and sometimes multiple fulfillment. That's what census plenier means. There's a, a fuller sense of the passage, initial passage. This is one where Christians disagree on, but Isaiah 7, 13 through 17, when it speaks of the uh, virgin will give birth to a son, okay? We all know that to be a prediction of Jesus' virgin birth, and rightfully so. But if you look at the passage, the initial passage, it actually seems to be saying that at that time, this was gonna be a sign to that king. He actually says that. This is gonna be a sign to that king. And in the Hebrew, the term for virgin doesn't necessarily have to be virgin. It can just be young, young woman, because we don't have two virgin births. <laughs> but in the Greek translation, it uses virgin. <clears throat> so kind of interesting. You can almost see that God was setting it up. There's an initial fulfillment, but this is the greater fulfillment, Jesus. Okay. So those are, especially when you're reading the New Testament and, and, and Matthew, that's, I read you one example of this. We see this idea of census plenier. And uh, so those are some, some thoughts on when they're speaking of something, there might be a greater fulfillment, might maybe an initial fulfillment at their time, but a greater fulfillment in the New Testament that maybe they didn't know about, but God certainly did. That's that dual authorship of, of the, that God is the ultimate author of the Bible. And progressive revelation. And we've already talked about this, but God is gradually revealing more and more who he is and what his plan is. In the prophets, we really do see the picture of God becoming more clear. The, who God is becomes far more clear in the prophets. It's one of the reasons why I love reading Isaiah, because you just see God in all his glory. So he's definitely the detail of who God is comes out more clearly, but also his plan in Isaiah, as well as the other prophets, these predictions of Messiah coming in, that, we did, that were very small hints of Messiah in the, in the other parts of the Old Testament, but now far more pieces are put into the puzzle, so to speak. So there's this progressive revelation of the prophets, okay? Now, principles of interpreting the prophets, I, I just have two here. Uh, the near view, far view telescoping. I just call it telescoping. You can call it whatever you want to. But picture a prophet, Isaiah chapter 11. He speaks of a baby who then, then he speaks of the government being on his shoulders. And we're thinking, baby, that's Jesus. Government on his shoulders, yeah, that's going to happen at his second coming right? But this seems to be speaking all of one thing. And the reason why we call it telescoping is because when you're looking at, imagine the prophet, he's looking at this, seeing this thing in a vision from a far distance away, and he sees what's going to happen, but he doesn't see that it happens in two stages, you would certainly not get, and nobody did, the idea that there are two comings of Messiah. But yet, once we get up close to it, 
it all makes sense. It's kind of like when you're traveling. Anybody driven to Colorado? Which way did you go? Nebraska or Nebraska? Wasn't it boring? Nebraska? Oh, it's just awful. Why did they make that state so long? But anyway, I guess they didn't, God didn't. But, <laughs> but Nebraska, so you're driving, 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 you're just bored to tears, and then you finally cross the Colorado line, and you're like, it still looks the same. I want to see mountains, Gandalf. And, but then, finally, in the distance, you see the mountains. And it looks like just one big, long mountain, doesn't it? But then when you get into the mountains, it's up and down, up and down. There's all kinds of valleys and everything. See, that's, they're seeing it from a distance. But when you get up close to it, it becomes more clear, especially about Messiah. And so hopefully uh, keep that in mind as you're reading these prophets. And then they're primarily anthologies. This is where the difficulty comes in as far as interpreting them. An anthology, they're just kind of, if you've noticed, they don't even go in chronological order sometimes. Jeremiah, he's just back and forth, and there's, you know, there's no rhyme or reason why chapter two is here and chapter three is there. It's just, it's just a, it's a collection of prophecies put together, okay, and obviously God knew what he was doing when he put them together. So he had a plan, but it's really hard sometimes to figure out what that plan was. Okay? Just the fact that, they're the, that we need it all is very, very important. But you might be reading on and then all of a sudden you're like, huh? Who's this? Where did that? You know, and um, I forget, I, I, a quote that Martin Luther said about the prophets was funny, but I can't remember. I don't have it memorized, so I'll just skip it. Okay. But, that, but hopefully that helps. But that does make it difficult to teach through. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of like the Proverbs. Didn't, didn't somebody, did, did somebody go through Proverbs in their life group recently? I thought I heard of Kevin. Was it Kevin? Okay, yeah. I was like, boy, that would be a tough one, you know. Because, <laughs> I mean, you're basically, uh, you know, you're just, you know, one proverb, the very next proverb has nothing to do with the one before it, you know. So I guess you just read them and say, okay, what wisdom do we get from this, you know, which is a good way of doing it, but, uh, but primarily anthologies, okay. Basic prophetic message, okay. This is the basic prophetic message. You have broken the covenant, you would better repent. No repentance, then judgment. Yet there's hope beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration. You see that in the prophets. To the people as a people, not necessarily as an individual, but as a people, as a people, repent. If not, judgment's coming, but there is, beyond that, a future restoration. And for specifically national, ethnic Israel. Not just Israel becomes the church kind of a thing or anything like that. It's national. God still has a plan for Israel. And that's what we see this, uh, this basic prophetic message. Three major sins addressed in the prophets. Uh, I say three, and this says seven deadly sins. Looks like 7-Eleven, right? Elizabeth makes my pictures for me. 
They're always, uh, always get a kick out of them. Three major sins addressed. Idolatry, over and over and over. Social injustice, definitely uh, spoken about. And religious spiritual, or ritualism, religious ritualism. So, in other words, going through the motions but not having a true heart of repentance. That explains the verses that says, I don't even care about your sacrifices. When God called them to offer sacrifices. Some people say, well, see, God never really wanted them to offer sacrifices. Like, oh, man, come on, just read the book instead of reading into it. You're whatever. No, he called them to sacrifice, but the sacrifice is meaningless unless it comes from the heart, the heart of repentance and faith. So this religious ritualism is rejected. So we see these three major, but number one is idolatry. He's constantly speaking against the people uh, in, in their committing of idolatry. He does not like it when we make images of him or anything else to worship. He just doesn't like it. Okay. It dumbfounds me that we still have churches making statues and using them for worship. It just dumbfounds me. There's this school. It has this statue in the middle of the square, and they call it the Trinity. It's Northwestern. In my school, I'm like, how is that not idolatry? Guys, come on. It's not just art. You're calling it the Trinity. This is a statue of God, you're saying, right? <laughs> ah! Anyway, the Bible doesn't like idolatry. Um, I've talked to my students about that, but I've never gotten in trouble. <laughs> I'll keep trying. Okay, what are some of the predictions of the prophets? So let me list a few. Jeremiah predicted the Babylon, Babylonian exile and the new covenant. Uh, so that was a, a, some predictions. Uh, Ezekiel predicted the destruction of Tyre and the new temple. Uh, so those are kind of fascinating predictions. The destruction of Tyre, he predicted that, and hundreds of years later, after Ezekiel died, uh, it came out exactly in detail how he predicted it would happen. And so it's really a remarkable, in my opinion, evidence that the Bible is God's word. That just that Tyre in, in Ezekiel chapter 16, kind of a fascinating, I mean, he says... Uh, that it's, it's going to, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's going to attack it, but uh, he's not going to completely destroy it, and it's going to have to be other nations that are going to have to get involved before it, its ultimate destruction. It will be scraped like a rock, bald. Uh, all its timbers will be cast into the sea, and it will become a place of fishing nets. And you're like, well, that's really weird. Uh, but then you find out what actually happened. Nebuchadnezzar attacked, but they moved out to the island just off of the place, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a uh, navy, so he wasn't able to go get them, so he didn't get the money. He didn't get the stuff, okay? And then later on, Alexander the Great, hundreds of years later, comes, takes all the building material, scrapes it off, throws it into the ocean, and creates a land bridge to, out to the island. Crosses over, gets the money, <laughs> okay? That's what happened. 
And we, we know that historically, not from the Bible, but from history. And yet it completely fulfills that incredible thing that, that certainly was written before the fact. Okay, so it's a kind of a, kind of a fascinating one. Uh, Isaiah predicts Cyrus uh, by name and, uh, and then also Messiah, Isaiah 53. Just a, a, yeah, and, and obviously several other passages about Messiah, but 53 is the, the classic section there. So we see, this is just a few. If you want to, I, I do go into detail on some of these in my book, The Uniqueness of the Bible, because dating is very important. If Isaiah wrote Isaiah and he wrote the whole thing, then he really did miraculously predict by name a guy hundreds of years later. But if Isaiah wasn't written until after the fact, then it's no miracle at all. But I show the evidence that argues for a dating, an early dating at the time of Isaiah. Same with Ezekiel, same with uh, some of the other um, prophecies, Daniel especially. So that, that becomes very important. Okay, questions to ask when you're reading the prophets. Is the prophet speaking of the present or the future? And sometimes it's not easy to tell. <laughs> but, uh, but those are worthwhile questions. Is he talking about his time or sometime in the future? Uh, is the prophecy literal or figurative? Because prophets use poetry, so there is some figurative nature, like when you're reading Daniel and you have a, a beast with seven heads, you know, there's a, what does that mean, right? So there's a figurative uh, aspect, but it does mean something. Some people say, well, it's figurative, so that means it doesn't mean anything. No, there is a point to it, but we need to recognize that. Uh, is the prophetic prediction conditional or unconditional? So that's at least worth uh, asking. And then what is the possibility of multiple fulfillments? So there's a, um, an interesting part. The, the, um, the abomination of desolation is a great example of that. Okay? It's a, there clearly was an initial fulfillment with Antiochus Epiphanes. But yet Jesus said it hadn't happened yet. So there must be something later. It almost seems like you could say the destruction of Jerusalem was a partial abomination of desolation. But not the full one. The full one's coming, okay? So that's, so it seems like there's going to be a temple, and it's going to be, you know, the Antichrist is going to appear in it, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So there's these multiple fulfillments. So what is the possibility on that particular uh, uh, passage? And then have I remembered the primary goal of the prophecy? And you're thinking, what is the primary goal? I'm glad you asked primary goal of the prophet, according to me, <laughs> to proclaim God's word, revealing who God is and what his plan is. That's the primary goal. The prophets declared who God is, and they go into much more detail so we can learn more about this God whom we love and fear. And what is his plan? What is the future? What is the end of the world going to be like? We see that in Zechariah, in Daniel, and other places, in Ezekiel. So well, that's the ultimate plan, and his plan to, to redeem the world through Messiah, Jesus. So, we're, so that's to proclaim God's word, and he's proclaiming it to the, the people right then and there. He does call them to repent, and they don't, and so the Babylonian captivity comes in, and they get all wiped out and killed and stuff. But, uh, 
but then also uh, revealing who God is and what his plan is. Prophecy in the Old Testament. This is actually uh, on uh, Mount Carmel. So if you go with us to Israel, which we are going in 2022, we will go to that place. Authoritative seer or prophet. And then, I don't have time to go into all this, so if you want to write these down, you can, or take a picture. It's interesting in the Bible, because there does seem to be this authoritative seer or prophet that speaks the very words of God. And then there seems to be this group that sometimes are called the sons of the prophets. And they don't ever actually say anything, but there does seem to be far more of an experiential encounter with God that happens. If you remember, even Saul has this really bizarre experience, etc. And then the question is, is Saul among the prophets? Speaking of this, this other group, so it seems like there's almost two categories, even in the Old Testament, of, of prophets. Um, and then... Uh, Characteristics of the biblical prophet received revelation through dreams and visions. Moses said he was the one who saw God face to face, uh, whereas the rest received his, his, uh, their words in dreams and visions. Uh, relayed message in various ways, sometimes proclamation, sometimes they used props. Ezekiel is very famous for his props. <laughs> Had to lay down on one side for almost a year, was it? And and, he's a, and he had to have all his food. And God said, no, I want you to use human dung to heat the food up. And he's like, oh, please, can I just use cow manure? Okay, cow manure. You know, that's a, you know that's a, you're like, boy, that poor guy. I mean, he really had to go through it, you know. He built a you know, little arts and crafts thing once and had to, you know. That's, a, that's a pretty funny. It had to take some, some underwear and go stick it in the... Uh, in the uh, the, the the river and then then leave and then come back and and found the the underwear all destroyed it's like duh you know but, but that, that, so lots of props in, in these guys and you gotta boy you know we'll, we'll, we'll have, they'll have some stories to tell us when we get to heaven <laughs> so, what was that like man oh man I can't believe he made me do that <laughs> okay anyway um, and in parables sometimes they taught in parables etc. As I've said before, foretelling and foretelling, so predicting the future and just speaking forth uh, to the people at the, at the time. Name used to identify prophets. We have prophets, uh, spokesperson, kind of fascinating, Daniel. In the book of Daniel is never called a prophet. Um, you might wonder, well, big deal. Daniel, in the Hebrew collection of the books of the Old Testament, he's not included in the prophets. He's included in the writings section, the Nevi'im, or I mean the uh, Ketuvim. And uh, so that's, uh, so some people said, well, it must have been written way later because uh, they just kind of stuck it in there. It's like, no, he really, he wasn't called a prophet, though he was a prophet, right? <laughs> but he was more a a statesman, uh, and that's a, so. There is a difference in in Daniel than the other, than the other prophets, but uh, but interesting. He is called a prophet in other passages, but just not in Daniel. Uh, a seer was just an older term for a prophet. Uh, visionary, um, man of God, another phrase used for them. Servant of Yahweh, and uh, 
messenger of Yahweh of the armies. I like that one. The messenger of the Yahweh of the armies. So names used to identify prophets. Uh, five major elements of prophecies of the future. The day of the Lord. So the Bible speaks that they spoke of the day of the Lord, and they were referring to the ultimate end time judgment day. Day of the Lord. This was going to be big. <laughs> the ingathering of the exile. Okay, so once they were exiled, they predicted their coming back. Um, and especially in the very end. The Messianic age, uh, the conversion of the Gentiles, and the eschatological and apocalyptic concepts. So some of the books were apocalyptic. When we get to Revelation, I'll talk about that more. more. We'll talk about that more, okay? But, uh, but a cataclysmic end of the world, as we know it. Okay, uh, message of the prophet, nature of God, ethical standards of God, plan of God. I think we already went through that, yeah, okay. So, questions on the prophets. We're not going to go into detail of Isaiah, etc., but if you have a question about one of them, that's fine. So, are there modern-day prophets? Good question. Are there modern-day prophets? I would say that the gift of prophecy is still for today. If somebody is very advanced in the use of that gift, I think you could call them a prophet, but not in the same sense as the prophet. So perhaps when I gave those two kinds of prophets even found in the Old Testament, I think you, Wayne Grudem makes a good case for this, that the New Testament gift of prophecy uh, is people receiving impressions from God and then sharing them in their own words. Whereas the apostles and the Old Testament prophets spoke the very words of God without error. So a New Testament prophet should be tested. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, test the prophets. Not to stone them, but just to sense, is this from God or not? So there's, they might be, in fact, in the book of Acts, uh, the prophets were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It literally says... I'm predicting, don't go to Jerusalem and, uh, uh, because you're going to get hurt there. Well, now, they were correct. He was going to get hurt there. But they were incorrect in, well, if you're going to get hurt there, don't go. <laughs> okay? Paul knew, because he was a prophet, speaking the very words of God, that, yes, I'm going to get hurt, but I'm supposed to go anyway. <laughs> okay? So there's that. They had an impression misinterpreted the impression. It was a correct impression, but misinterpreted what should be the response. Uh, so there seems to be these two levels, so to speak, and we don't have those kinds of people now speaking and writing the very words of God. And by the way, they also had complete authority, the apostles did, over all of the church. So we don't have that either, in my opinion. So the, the other question, are there apostles, modern-day apostles today? I would argue no. Um, it, though the gift of apostleship, somebody having a leadership gifting or something like that, I would have no problem with that. I, just, I wouldn't call them apostle if you want to. That's fine. Just long. But most people recognize they're not the same as this original group. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Why do you think that there are several prophecies about countries that are not Israel and they're not delivered to those countries? They're delivered to Israel. 
I don't understand the question. So there's prophecies against oracles and prophecies against other countries. Oh, yeah. But they're not delivered to those people. They're oh, delivered to sure. Israel. Why? Sure. Uh, probably primarily God is speaking to his people uh, and, uh, you know, so they would learn about these countries. Now, should someone go and therefore take it to them? Sometimes they did. Yeah. So there's, uh, so there's that. But, uh, and, and it does reveal that God does care about all nations and that nations are going to be judged. <laughs> so, any other thoughts before we call it a day? Yeah. Because they treated Israel badly, uh, you know, during different periods of history. That dates right back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God said, um, those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. Uh, I mean, and that is still true today because God is still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. If we as a country go against and start moving away from the protection of Israel, we're going to pay the price for it. That's it. Now, not all Christians agree with that. In fact, most Christians disagree with that right now. Most theologians, I should say, at least. And I think they're wrong. <laughs>